Well remembered, Lisa. Thank you very much. Yes, I remembered to press, press record on this live webinar. And my name's Lisa Cherry, and I'm going to be your host today. And I'm really excited because today we are talking about relationships. We're talking about boundaries. We're talking about a whole raft of things that I know that you're all going to find really interesting. So before I contextualize what we're doing here, may I just introduce Peter? Hello, Peter. Oh, no, he's disappeared. What happened to Peter? Um, well, first of all, then let me go to Danica. Hello. Hi, Danica. And Peter um, is here, but he's gone off screen, which is, um, I guess, one of those um, things that happens on live webinars. Well, there's something in the CUNY. I don't know if that... Yeah, just to say oh, that he's... So, okay. Um, he will be back, I'm sure. It's a glitch in the system. So just to contextualise this whole um, conversation, it really came out of the research that I'm currently doing. And I started to see things in the research that said things about professionals that people had worked with. So my research looks at care experienced adults who were also excluded from school and how they made sense of belonging. And one of the things that I started noticing were people using sentences like, they saved my life. I wouldn't be here without them. Mm. And I became really curious about this, really fascinated with what it was that was so life-changing what were people referring to what kind of practices and those practices when we um, dug more deeply were actually very normal relational behaviors so I put a tweet out and um, asked and, and, and noted this and the response was huge lots of people started talking about the tension between professional practice and relational practice and actually some of the concerns and issues and things that we think about around safety, um, around having what kind of structures do you need in place to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's the context, really. And that led to um, Peter and Danica coming forward and saying, actually, I'm not just interested in this. I'm like really interested in this. So I wonder while we wait for Peter to um, deal with his technical issues, I wonder, Danica, would you like to just introduce yourself and a bit about what you do and what your interest in this is? Yeah. So hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Danica Darley and I am uh, currently a PhD student at the University of Sheffield. And uh, my research looks at the criminal exploitation of children in care, both children who are currently in care 
and um, care leavers who have kind of experienced it in the past. So, um, and the reason that my PhD research looks at that is my professional background before coming back into academia was that I worked um, in residential care homes and I also worked with uh, young people who were care leavers and young people who might be on the sort of fringes of the criminal justice system in sort of a diversionary type program way. So um, I think when Lisa, I followed Lisa on Twitter for, for quite a while and always kind of very interested about the things that she was saying, but I think this really, the tweet that you put out about this kind of relationship-based professional practice really struck a chord with me because I think that I thought that it was something that I did in isolation. You know, when I think when you're working in, in that sector, I think that you work with young people, you work with children, and you feel like um, you're going above and beyond the role that you are given because you want to make a difference in those young people's lives. And you might see pockets of that happening, um, but I wasn't sure how wide that kind of went above and beyond my, my own role and my own organisations I'd worked with. Um, and then when this when the tweet went out and then I was and all these people started responding to it, I was like, wow, it's a bigger thing than that. It's something that people need to people think about a lot. And perhaps we need to open that conversation space up and have a wider think about it um, as well. And I think there's something definitely about culture that feeds into that as well. I think when you're working perhaps in social work or or residential childcare or something like that, the culture can be quite, it can grind you down sometimes. And I think to feel that there's maybe these, um, these collective voices or these pockets of resistance that kind of push back against that, that can make you feel like um, you have people on your side or in your corner I think that can be really helpful for us so that was kind of my my interest in it from from the start Lisa. Mm. Let's just think about that culture when you talk about culture what do you mean what are you thinking about when you say culture? I think that it's, so perhaps it's a little bit about a work-life balance sometimes you feel like um, you give up an awful lot of your own self to to the work and perhaps that's not rewarded in the same way that maybe financially or benefits in that way it might be in another type another sector oh peter's back um yeah in another sector so i think that there's so that that can perhaps grind you down after you've been doing it for a few years a few times and i think maybe realizing that there's other people that kind of still hold out hope in that that you in the same way that you do can be empowering for us and can help us realize what we can do to kind of affect change and and, and change systems so I think for me and we'll probably go on to talk about this but the the broader thing was about how do we take this stuff that we're talking about and, and advocate for a sort of wider systematic change or something that can make people feel perhaps more connected and able to do this properly relationship-based practice. Because you just used the word resistance, and I'd like to come back to that. But now we've got Peter back in the room after his initial technical challenges. Honestly, I think I'm cursed. Honestly, this this has happened to me far too regularly on live webinars. So. Listen, we are just... We're so pleased that you found whatever button you needed to press that made it happy, switched it on and off again, you it, came that, back. So. That's what it was. It was leave and then come back in and it was working yeah. fine. So who knows what that was about. So, Peter, you know, what's your – we were just talking contextual. I don't know how much you are able to tap into what we were talking about, but just contextualising what we're doing here. But, you know, you've got a, an even – you've got a really deep passion in this. So what kind of happened for you when you saw that tweet? What was – what was going on for you and where do you kind of step into this space? 
I mean, thanks, Lisa. I mean, there's something about timing because I couldn't believe it um, when I saw your tweets because I'd, I'd literally just finished writing um, a book chapter on this particular uh, topic, which is it's not out till next year. Um, so just to give some context, I'm a therapist, but I'm also a social worker um, and I've completed um, two pieces of research on boundaries, one with regards to therapists and one with regards to social workers. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in this particular topic um, and un, very interested actually generally in boundaries and in terms of how individuals understand boundaries and what they associate with boundaries. So um, in all the research that I've done um, in, with professionals, they've all seemed to have like an inherent understanding of, oh, yeah, boundaries, they're important. Like it's something that we need within a professional context. But then when you kind of start asking them, well, what do you mean by boundaries? What, what does that actually look like in practice? Everybody's answers are very, very different, mm. and very, very nuanced um, around their approach and their understanding around what boundaries are. So for me, that's, that's really interesting as a research topic. But also it's um, a, a concerning in a way because I think a lot of the time we have this kind of collective idea that there is these professional boundaries that we're all adhering to when you actually start to talk to people about it everybody's boundaries are really different so that has implications obviously for when we're working with with people or other professionals um in terms of what we do so for me it's like uh, as a topic I just find it really fascinating so when you've been doing your research around boundaries um so for example I get really excited when I see a paper that talks about a definition of something because it's done a systematic review on that particular word and it's tried to come up with a definition of that word. What what came up for you when you were thinking about boundaries and and and, and did you get to a point where you came up with any kind of systematic um, definition of of what boundaries actually are in terms of what we can convey to people? So, I mean, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> I had a feeling it was. <laughs> um, but it was when in one of the pieces of research I did with my PhD, um, that was an original aim of I was actually trying to speak to therapists and then kind of come up with like, a, what, what are we actually talking about? But what actually came from that was actually, I think it is too difficult to come up with one overarching mm. singular definition about what we're talking about. But that also means that when we are discussing it, it is important, what is it that we're actually talking about? So for therapists, say, for example, there's all different types of boundaries. There's there's the structural boundaries of a session, there's the interpersonal boundaries, there's the emotional boundaries, there's professional ethics um, and ethical behaviour. So there's lots of different things that we could be talking about. So when I did my second piece of research, which was with social workers, I was more defined with that, and I asked them what professional boundaries were, so specifically around the role um, of the uh, of the profession and the social worker um, and that helps kind of get some more kind of defined answers um, so I think it yeah I think it's difficult and I think that's why it's really important to have a conversation about because uh, say for example if you're working with somebody and you are advocating for a specific way to use boundaries it's really important what are we actually talking about here is this your personal preference in terms of how what you're comfortable with in terms of boundaries or is it actually uh, something that is going to be useful for the person that you're working with? When you're talking about, and I just want people to know, we are in a live webinar. You can put things in the chat box. You can put questions in the Q&A. 
um, which is a bit different because this will be uh, posted up on the uh, podcast as well. Um, and we will make space to answer some of those questions. But I'm just thinking of your work, uh, Danica, because if we're talking about boundaries and understanding what those boundaries are, you're looking at something that's very much around blurred boundaries, uh, not being able to step, uh, not knowing, not having a knowledge about how do you even set boundaries, uh, consent. Yeah. There's a whole range of things that that are kind of stemming off of that, that if if we are not able to actually be really clear about what boundaries are, how they look, how we define them, what they feel like, then how do we model that to support and help other people? Yeah, I think that comes back to the, the relationship-based aspect that this all kind of stems on from for me. And in order to do kind of really good relationship-based work, there has to be a conversation on a one-to-one basis around those boundaries and around how we what our boundaries are as professionals and what the boundaries are of the individual that we're working with. And I think the problem with that is that we then have a system that doesn't necessarily appreciate that context or that level of individuality. So we we end up with this large system that um, manages risk in its broadest sense. And I think that that leaves little space for us to kind of negotiate those boundaries that are suitable for us as professionals, but also suitable for the people that we're working with as well. Because, um, I mean, and Peter talks about this in some of his work and and, and on the website that I'm sure Lisa's going to get to come to later on, there's, there's kind of conversations around about how people bring their own experiences to those and, and their own ideas of setting boundaries. And I think that we need to develop a way of allowing the time and space and the reflection that's needed for us to do that in a way that's meaningful rather than just a kind of top-down approach that says this is right and this is wrong that kind of negotiation of context is is vital for that stuff do you think and this question's to either of you and I'm I've just been informed that the chat box is disabled uh, so do use the Q&A um do you think that the reason that we struggle so much to define boundaries and to think about the implications around boundaries might have something to do with why professional boundaries can be so far removed from relational practice and also do not ensure that we have the safety that practitioners need actually if they are going to do real relational practice you need very safe spaces to do that Do you think that that might be the reason that actually this implicit idea that we know what boundaries are, but never making it explicit and unpacking it is why we've got to a point where it's actually very difficult to. So the examples were in my research, doing somebody's washing, staying connected post service, having somebody for Christmas, really normal relational behavior that the practitioners involved were known to have got into trouble for was the language used. Where do you sit on that, Peter? I mean, I mean, there's a couple of points that come to mind. I mean, the idea of professional boundaries, it's means it's loaded, isn't it, in terms of well, what do we mean by professional? You know, and I think a lot of uh, uh, professionals will get um, criticised for doing things like that as being unprofessional, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, in the social workers that I interviewed, it was really interesting because it felt like that they actually really had a good understanding of relational boundaries. 
And But the problem was the organisation and the system that they were in, which kind of stopped them practising in a way that was relational or, or limited them in some way. Um, so actually, I think a lot of people actually naturally have that kind of instinctive what works relationally, but it's almost kind of taught out of them or, or mm. pushed out of them by this idea of professionalism um, and what is a professional uh, approach. Um, and I think sometimes that can be used as a bit of a defence for actually this this is maybe a little bit risky or this is a little bit, you know, going outside of the usual remit of what we would normally do. But instead of kind of saying, but it's still important that we do it, we then get the shield of, oh, it's unprofessional and therefore it creates a distance between mm. people, I think. I really, I really like that bringing, and bringing that word risk because it's almost like you may as well detonate the bomb when you say the word risk it just kind of that's it not going near it not having anything to do with it barriers come up barriers come up it is like the detonator that word isn't it so how do we do this stuff in ways that um mean that we can hold we can hold some of the risk because all this work has risk doesn't it you know you can't get away from that Danica any thoughts that you want to add in there I suppose the way that I think we start to tackle that stuff is things like this. I think that like coming together and realizing that actually lots of people are doing this stuff, but we are pushing against a system that stop tries to stop us from working in this kind of what works way. Um, and making sure that we realize that we're not alone in that practice, I think is hugely important. And this kind of like social work has a massive tradition of activism and and I think and um because of that grassroots um collective action. And I think that this is the start of that for me. Something like coming together and realizing that lots of people are doing this stuff is a way that we can kind of try and change those systems that maybe argue for that greater appreciation of context or that ability to know that it's okay to you know invite a care leaver home for Christmas or something like that you know but stuff that we've probably all thought about doing but then there's been like that little devil or angel on our shoulder that stops us from doing it it would be nice to know that we feel safe enough in our kind of roles and capacity to be able to do that stuff and because we know that's the things that make the change for the people that we work with. Mm. I want to bring in a couple of uh, questions from the Q&A So Robin's talking about the three P's, which I love and I use all the time. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, that stems very much from residential practice. Um, And it's about the professional, the personal and the private that we bring into uh, the spaces that we work. And I've looked at that in writing for healing. I've I've looked at that in loads of ways um, because I think it's, it's so incredibly helpful, but also in supervision, I think it's really helpful because it's it helps say, okay, this stuff here, maybe this would be better dealt with in a more one-to-one therapeutic setting. And this stuff here, we can actually look at in our professional clinical supervision. Um, what do you think about that? Have you both, I'm sure you're both familiar with three Ps. Um, Danica. I was going to say I'm not massively familiar with it. I kind of read I've read little bits around it, um, but yeah, I think that there is an argument for sort of separating things out like that. And and like you were saying about in a sort of professional supervision role, 
But I suppose what I think about that is that that relies on having somebody who's supervising you understanding that basis as well. And I think that we're maybe not at that that point yet. Um, so it would be nice to feel that we, if, and perhaps some people are in an organisation that culturally appreciates that stuff. But I think the sort of wider feeling that I get, and certainly from um, talking to people on this project and people putting their own stories on the on the group that we had, um, it made me feel that perhaps that we maybe aren't in that space yet um, for appreciating it in that respect. And I certainly know when I had sort of professional supervision and um, when I was working in residential childcare, um, I had some people that really got that and other people that didn't get it. And I think that that's probably maybe the, the dilemma with that stuff sometimes. But if we can kind of argue for that pedagogy more widely, I think that would be really helpful. I think that's a fantastically observed point, Danica. Thank you, Peter. Um, just kind of following on from that, I agree with those uh, points, Danica. I think um, in my research, what I found was that there was a lot of um, that social workers were kind of resisting what like those organisational neoliberalist kind of values. You know, they were kind of they were kind of trying to cross boundaries and do relational practice, but kind of almost like doing it under the radar, like pushing the limits a little bit, um, which I really liked. But then they would get to a point where they were pushed into a corner where they were kind of like, I can't do this anymore. And I would say, mm. well, what did you do then? And they'd say, well, I just left because there was nowhere mm. to challenge or resist. It had got to a point where they felt like they couldn't couldn't bear it anymore. Um, so, I mean, a couple of things from that. I think um, there is such things as external supervision, which I think is is really important and really, I think, should be offered to, to, to most professionals who are working in any kind of organisation where you can have a space where you can reflect on some of those things. Is it safe to kind of push some of those boundaries? You know, is it do you feel supported? Are there ways that you can find other colleagues who you can talk to those things about? So creating spaces where you can work through some of those issues, because I think if you're on your own, and you're trying to do some of this stuff and you're not supported by your organization or your team or your manager or whatever, it can be really risky and it can be really difficult to be like a lone voice in the midst yeah. of, of all of that. So, um, yeah, trying to find your people. I think someone's mentioned that in the, in the q and I, I feel heard, they said, and, and, I, and I think connecting with other people, which is part of this project, I think, is to connect with others who, are, who feel the same way and who kind of want to bring that relational practice about a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And um, and I yeah, it's that difference as well between case supervision and clinical supervision, you know, and um, I have worked in organisations that have external supervisors. I pay for my own external supervision now um, working independently. Uh, But yeah, that kind of case supervision, which doesn't just doesn't make space for what you'll bring what you bring into that space and and, um, and whatever level uh, that you're at as well because I, I worked um before I was qualified I worked as a support worker in a charity organization um supporting asylum seekers and, and refugees and that organization paid for external supervision for me once a month you know for all the support workers who who worked there so you know if, a, if, a, if an organization with no money like that can do it yeah I, I, you know, for all members of staff, I just don't believe that it's not possible to do that. I think that's right. It's about priorities, isn't it? And I think that, and that comes onto the topic of reflection. I think we have very little time in the pressured environments that, that we work in a lot of the time to have that 
proper period of reflection that allows us to answer some of those questions that are coming up in the chat about uh, boundaries and bringing your whole self and, and relationship-based practice because organizations don't appreciate that that's something that we need to have the, the space and the time to do and I think like you say Peter if an organization that with a, a small pot of money can can do something as important as that then we should be making the case for you know our local authorities and our, our bigger organizations to do that stuff as well. Yeah and I think Lois raises that really interesting tension you know in terms of how how does bringing my whole self to work fit with boundaries and and I guess that's where Robin's suggestion of three P's is 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 one answer to thinking about that um but also not feeling not feeling safe and and not feeling that you perhaps have that that private space um but you know I have worked with people that don't necessarily understand that they're they're deep in their private space in their workspace and that actually there's a there's a point where that's um unhelpful to the people we're walking alongside uh mm. when we're walking alongside them so the, there's all sorts of tensions and issues that that need a very intelligent and embodied space to explore um and we have somebody um saying our anonymous person saying they they feel heard when we're talking about this stuff because it's not the stuff that's talked about necessarily. Um, the system doesn't keep you safe, you say, and you've experienced vicarious trauma for giving up a lot of yourself to the work. And I guess, again, that's about having people around you that can help have those conversations that help you. Because here's the thing, right? You're dipping in and you're pulling back. You're going in and you're pulling back. It's a dance. And if you bring your own lived experiences into that work, which many of us have done, then it takes something else. It take, it draws from a different space within you that's that's deeper. And there's a great uh, podcast conversation, actually, um, on, on my podcast with Tracy Farrell, where we talk about that, that deep, empathic response that really takes something from you when it's also coming from your own experiences. So again, these are very, very nuanced uh, discussions that, that need space where often there is none. Um, Kirsty asks. Could I just add, sorry, Lisa, could oh, I just please, add to, please to, to that, that yes. point about the bringing your whole selves? Because I was, I, I think that's a really interesting um, discussion point. I think for me, when I think about bringing my whole self, I think about bringing my whole relational self to my work and um, that doesn't mean it's unboundaried for me you know I don't don't share every aspect of my life or whatever and I'm I'm mindful about what I do share and what I don't share but I can still bring my whole relational being into in, into that process and I suppose for me that's that's what it's about I love that bringing your whole relational self I really love that but I wonder um, if I wonder if it's a process to get to that point Peter and I I I don't think that's something you just arrive at. You turn up day one of working in social care or whatever. You don't yeah. necessarily understand that stuff. And I don't know if we have um, these things built in to teach us that. It's something that you kind of have to learn by trialing it and error as you go along. And I, and I think there has to be a, a, a recognition that in the social work profession, and I'm sure your research bears this stuff out, is that 
we have a massive rate of burnout and people leave it early because they feel unappreciated and undervalued. And part of that's pay and terms and conditions and all of that stuff. But part of it is this, part of it is not understanding how to bring your relational self and not make it feel like it affects your whole life because not everybody kind of wants to work like that, but we still want to do the good work with the people that we're working with or do make the good impact for ourselves and for others. So I think that there's something about how we um, train that or teach that or something that's important as well. No, I completely agree with that. And I suppose what I'd add is that that is my aim to try and bring my whole relational self, not that I'm kind of gliding through with this, this kind of, um, it's always something I'm trying to achieve, but it doesn't always happen. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. So um, Kirsty asks the question that so many people ask and that get really kind of um, thoughtful and concerned about, which is this idea about dependency. I mean, I, I have a view on this um but this idea that by bringing your whole relational self are you creating um uh, a dependency for that person upon upon the practitioner um i mean shall i go with my view on that first so i think for me we are often modeling and for those of us who've accessed services as children, being modelled to what a healthy relationship looks like. By healthy, I mean bounded and kind and supportive and consistent and has a good start, a good, a good quality ending. That these are all really important aspects of relational behaviours that have often been missed. So the idea that a dependency comes is not something in my lexicon and my thinking around this at all. But I'm really aware that it's something people feel really anxious about. Mm. Who would like to explore that a bit further? Um, well, I suppose I just what I think, I think similar to you, actually, Lisa, about this. And I think that we have if we're doing good relationship based work it allows us to explore that stuff through conversation and through um, modelling and all of those other things that you just talked about. And I suppose um, what I want to do through my practice and through my work is get to a point where people feel, the way that my own children would feel, that they are ready to tackle things for themselves or feel ready to you know, start a job or go off to university or all of those different kind of things. And I suppose that I want that dependency to maybe be there a little bit, but I want them to feel that they can grow in their own independence from that. And I think, I mean, that's utopia, right? And I know and I understand that there's lots of different reasons why we can't make that stuff happen. And I think part of these conversations that we're having today kind of can go towards some way to sort of solving that or discussing that in, in, in some part. But I think that that would be the ideal way to avoid that dependency is to have that time and space to grow that relationship and allow people to feel that they're you're promoting their independence rather than a dependency through that. And just to add before Peter comes in, I think what you're really speaking to there is interdependence. Yeah. And actually that for me is the key, that this idea that we have um, 
that any of us are independent fully, I think is mythology. Mm. We have interdependence on our environment, on our relationships, on the people around us. And actually what we need to be doing is building relational webs around people so that they have access to lots of different um, high quality relationships that are supportive and nurturing. That for me is the kind of goal of relationship focused practice. It's not about my relationship with somebody, although that's in the mix. It's actually about the work that I put in to ensure that in communities there are relational webs for people Mm. to hook into. Peter. Um, I mean, that following on from that, Lisa, for me, it's about, well, what do we mean by dependency? You know, because it probably means that somebody is getting something from that relationship, which is what we were trying to achieve in the first place, you know? Um, so for me, it's and, and a bit what Danica was saying, have we got the space or the room to explore that and to see, well, what will happen if this relationship ends? You know, what other support is kind of in place? And for mm. me... Um, for me, that's about boundaries, but it's about compassionate boundaries. You know, we're not just putting these things in place for the sake of it. This relationship's going to end because I can't work with you forever. You know, it's about, well, this relationship will end when we realise that you've got the other support, you know, available mm. to you that, that, that you need. And if that's, mm. not been, if that's not been achieved, then why would we be ending that relationship? Yeah, absolutely spot on. Um, Tiffany says, Intra- and I'm loving the questions coming in. I'm loving that we even have this space, you know, to kind of do this stuff. Because, hey, how often do we just sit down and have a conversation about stuff that people, uh, you know, that re- these kind of really reflective questions. So um, really interested in relational boundaries when it comes to children, particularly the early years, says Tiffany. Research shows relationship and emotional attachment is key to development of building resilience. And this is likely to have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. I'm a safeguarding officer, understand the need for safety. At the same time, most services for children have a no-touch policy. Honestly, don't even get me started on no-touch stuff. Seriously. That makes me so cross. Yeah. Um, Including being willing to accept and give a hug to a child where the child asks for it. I'm sorry. I'm going to say something really controversial. That's abuse. Mm. For me, for me, that's how I see that. Um, I struggle with how, as a society, we are responding to the needs of children with this policy and where safe, safeguarded policies can be created to allow for more natural relational-based support. Absolutely, Tiffany, you're spot on. Um, the uh, safer caring policies that are steeped in the detonator, the word risk, Mm-hmm. Um, and not having the things in place that we've talked about are where those things come from. I don't know if Peter or Danica want to add to that other than I don't know. I don't know your views on that, but I can't imagine they're dissimilar to mine. No, I think that um, organisations that I worked with kind of when I was moving out of practice and moving back in, in, into academia were moving away from that stuff. I think the no stu- the no touch stuff was starting to sort of disappear. Certainly when I started working with children in care, we were only allowed to cuddle them from the side. You weren't allowed, you know, there was lots of horrible stuff that's sort of stopped around that. And, and it's it's not great. And I agree, Lisa, I think that if a child comes to me and asks me for a hug, it's because they have an innate need for something that, that I can give them. And I'm going to, I'm going to give them that, that hug. Um, but I think, I think things are adapting and changing and there's better ways of it being done now in a way that kind of 
considers those boundaries, but also offers that the the people, the, the young people or the children, the thing that they need. Um, I mean, I completely agree with both of you. And I, and I think that's just a, a, an example, really, of where boundaries are put in place for the sake of an over-obsession with risk, really, you know, um, and to kind of deny children and young people a hug. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, you know, why why are we doing that? You know, what what's the reason that is certainly not compassionate boundaries for me? Mm. Yeah, lots of comments uh, coming up around supervision and, um, you know, it's been described here, it's become much more of a technical, rational checkup than a reflective space yeah. for relational analysis. Um, and, of course, when it's done well, builds our resilience. So I think that's really um, something to think about. Um, Kirsty's also put that in the context of you may be the only person who has ever listened or spent time. So that's where we get these words like lifesaver mm. um, and uh, uh, I couldn't have done it without them. When we've got the adult self reflecting back, because let's remember, I'm really interested in adults reflecting back and they are very absent in the academic literature. Asking adults to reflect back on experiences you'd think was kind of a norm, mm. but it really isn't. There is very little work out there that looks beyond even 25. I've seen a couple of things up to 29, but really looking at adults across the life course, reflecting back, um, I hope I'm adding to that, that body of literature. That's the plan. Um, so, Gabrielle, great point, Peter. And because we don't have a chat box, we've got a Q&A. I don't know which point they're referring to. Um, but they go on to say it's why it's critical that we differentiate between what's private and shouldn't be part of professional practice and what's personal and enhances practice because it enables us to bring our relational self. What's personal enhances practice because it enables us to bring our relationship up I think that is a key key point in this especially when we're thinking about what we have dealt with from our own lived experiences and I'm saying lived experiences rather than living experiences to demarcate the idea that we are on the other side of something we may be processing for a long time right but we are on the other side of something um, and I love that um, when we have that self-awareness and that deeper understanding of our of ourselves, that helps us do the relational work. We have Becca Dove in the room. Hello, Becca Dove. We love Becca. So Becca says, given the lack of definition of what a boundary is and how personal that concept is to someone. So I guess this is for you, Peter, because this raises your points. Um, does a question in in what of in what ways are my words, behaviors, and actions ensuring the physical and emotionally safety of self and others give a different way of framing it? I'm not sure, and I don't think it answers the dilemma, but I'm curious about it. Becca Dove. Peter. I think that is a, a brilliant point. And I, I suppose um I'd, I'd add to that by saying that for me, you can't just take any one approach to boundaries. 
You know, you need to understand the person that you're working with, what is their perception and understanding of boundaries and how safe or unsafe do they feel in different different boundary circumstances. So, for example, I wouldn't be suggesting like we loosen and soften our boundaries to somebody who maybe that makes them feel quite unstable, mm-hmm. you know, not very clear kind of ideas about what's happening. Actually, there should be very clear boundaries for that person so that they feel held and supported but then obviously the opposite can be true with somebody if you put in strict rigid boundaries that can make people people feel trapped and kind of um oppressed even and so it is about it's about how we understand our own boundaries but we also need to understand the person who we're working with as well and how we can adapt and change what we're doing so that they're best supported so i think phrasing it like that i think yeah is really important because it's about what we're doing to support and make safe the person who 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 we're working with um, and that depends on their boundaries, but also on our, our own as well. Excellent. Um, okay, we've got somebody talking about, this is a brilliant conversation in the professional space, but how about we take this into communities, into the community realm? And I would add that I'm doing quite a lot of work with um West Yorkshire, I'm consulting around trauma-informed practice across West Yorkshire by 2030. It's a massive piece of work, a massive undertaking. But one of the things that we are very much in conversation with is how do we have some of these conversations in community? And how do we do that without, you know, in a very, in a way that doesn't kind of freak people out? I think the word trauma, for example, Mm. um, can be really confronting and feel a bit... um, disconnecting of experience if we're not if it's not a word that we're familiar with using around psychological harm or emotional harm so that is definitely something that that um i'm very positive about and how we create pop-up spaces where we can just have conversations on walls and you know just ask people a question just ask the question for example what does it mean to you when we say if if you hear the word boundaries? You know, just asking people, creating a space where you can ask people in community. So that's that's a, a great question. Does anyone want to speak to that or? Um, I was going to say, I suppose this comes back to what we were talking about a little bit before about that interdependence stuff, about having that, um, you know, the, that community solution to things is so often the answer to loads of different things and professionals don't always have the answers to things. So we need to get better. And I think other sectors do it better than we do and um, get better at understanding how communities can help with the answers to their own problems and their own solutions um, in the way that isn't necessarily top down in the way that social work or social care necessarily respond with these things and I think if we get better at doing that stuff in terms of um, that interdependence and that reliance and that web of support that you were talking about before Lisa um, perhaps we can address some of the ideas around risk and professional boundaries that we're talking about in the systems to start with if we've got more of a output at the end of it that we know people have got uh, the people around them that they're going to need. Yeah so just in response um to us talking about no touch policy tiffany said can feel very ostracizing to even suggest to even suggest this um even when you are in agreement that these policies are abusive um 
the no-touch policy still feels very live across sectors. Mm. So I think that's something that actually maybe we can look at. We're going, I'm just going to take the last few questions and then we're going to introduce you to our new website and we'll be looking for people to blog on there. It's a collective, you know, this is not about me, Danica and Peter. We're just kind of holding this space. Uh, We've created a website. We're looking for blog posts, ideas. We want to have safe practice. You know, if you want to, I think the no touch policy sits within this really well Mm. and is something that we can explore. So thank you for that, Um, Tiffany. Really appreciate that. Um, Lois also talks about that being willing and able to learn and reflect as we build relationships. I mean, one of the first things I ask people in training is what is a relationship? You know, let's stop using these words like we all know what Mm. they mean. You know, what do we mean by relationship? What does it mean to think about not having relationships if you've always had relationships? You know, you have to go somewhere deeply within and think about life without the people you love. And who wants to do that on a Monday morning? You know, so those are the kind of things thinking about compassionate boundaries. Lois loves that. Um, Going to Richard. Richard is the trauma informed lead um, in Leeds uh, Community Mental Health Transformation great title love it um and a crucial aspect of this is a plan to make a therapeutic psychologically safe relationship as part of the basic offer and the core business of every worker so richard asks what principles and approach might be needed to implement this across a huge workforce just a little question from richard Nothing too major, something we can answer in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Many of whom might be resistant. Resistance, it's that word again, isn't it? I love that resistance of poor practice, but resistance to actually changing and moving things forward. Um, good support and reflective spaces for staff are already planned. But what else do we need that helps people go on that journey, Peter? So I'm going to flip that question, I suppose, back to Richard in a way, because I so I understand that that you're rolling something out and you want kind of everybody to be on board. But to do that, you're going to need to understand what those barriers are. So I don't know those people and, and what that might be. So I would do some work beforehand to try and understand, give people an idea of what the plan is going to be and then get some feedback about why people might think that that is not going to work or why they're resistant to it. And that will give you a lot more to work with when you actually eventually roll roll it out. Fantastic, Peter. Brilliant. Danica, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that probably telling people um, what you think the solution is is probably not going to work. And maybe that almost that community stuff that we were just saying, giving people an opportunity to kind of say, this is what's going to work for me. And I suppose the consequence of that is further down the line, they might feel that there's some more ownership over that and be more on board and and invested in those those solutions. Sorry, that sounds like I'm trying to tell you how to do your job, Richard. I'm sure you know how to do all of that, that stuff already. But I think that it's probably useful to have that conversation in this kind of wider context of kind of professional boundaries and 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 that support and reflective spaces that you already mentioned. I honestly think that some of the resistance to trauma-informed ways of working is because of how it centralizes lived experience and living experience, how it seeks to um, deal with the imbalance of power. Um, how it looks to create voice and agency for people that haven't had any. And I think that can feel frightening. It's the the risk detonator again, Mm. actually, Um, alongside other complexities like uh, power shifts that people 
you know, uh, don't understand necessarily. So I think, I think there's something in there for me about, I definitely think Peter and Danica are right. You know, you need to get that kind of feedback. What does that resistance feel like? Sometimes it's that people don't understand. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about trauma and what I call trauma 101. But actually, what does it mean? What does it mean uh, for trauma-informed practice to be in practice, which is very much the work I'm focused on currently for this very reason, you know, what do we do now? You know, so one, great one, question. One oh. of the things I'd also possibly say is I've noticed um, students who train as social workers and as other, other professionals often often say that they don't feel that they are prepared for practice when they actually go into kind of statutory social work or whatever. And sometimes I think there's a bit of a disparity there in terms of what's being taught and what the organisation is like. And I think both sides could possibly learn things from, from yeah. each other to try and have a more integrated approach to practice rather than these two things that often seem quite distant from each other. So um, I think that can become ingrained within in organisations and, and, and communities as well. Yeah, and, and Kirsty's commented here that people's own undisclosed trauma can be brought up by introducing trauma-informed practice, which also creates that resistance and fear. Um, and Lois suggests using the um, human learning system cycle learning cycle, uh, which helps explore relational ways of working. Um, and Paula talks about having lots of conversations at the start of their project, re-guarding those individual fears so that they could be talked through and understood. So that's fantastic. I hope there's lots there for you to think about and ponder, Richard. And I'm going to take a final question from SAS. Um, SAS, you'll all Note, if you've read Conversations That Make a Difference for Children and Young People, a little bit of a book plug there, um, is one of the conversations in the book and talks very much around burnout um, mm. within social work. So she says, it feels that there is something very important to be acknowledged in addition to burnout, which is around the positive healthy spaces around and within boundaries. This has felt a very safe space to start this conversation. So thank you. If we put risk and fear above the boundaries we're discussing, then we might also be cutting the parts of our work that are supportive and part of ours and those we work with, their growth. Concepts such as compassion, satisfaction, post-traumatic growth and the healthier impacts of stress are all good parts of our work. And I'm wondering if we feel that these conversations could also be important and the short answer from me sas is yes get blogging let's get your blogs yeah. on the website yeah i was gonna say i think absolutely and i don't think we talk about that stuff nearly enough as we as we should do i think we were we're very uh, easily talk about kind of the the burnout and the and the hard work and 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 the system problems but actually talking about that positive stuff uh, that, that we get from it i think is really important too and i think I think in the kind of spirit of being hopeful and, and moving forward, I think that we should definitely be looking at all that stuff as well. And, and just to add to that, I, I would say that the website Lisa's going to talk about now for me is about a celebration of practice, actually. So kind of good examples of practice and the things that people are doing well yeah. so that we can feel supported and learn from each other. So, um, I yeah, I agree. So as we head into the last few minutes of the webinar, um, 
the website that we have created, which we hope you will input in, it's not completely finished, but oh my goodness. I mean, I think it's never going to be finished. It's not that kind of website, but there's a few little tweaky bits, but I hope you're going to love it on www.breakingtheboundaries.co.uk. And we really want that to be a collective space. Um, we want, we really want to have as much information on there as possible so that it's a space for discussion and supervision in team meetings for you to take into your work practice for people to understand this is not an isolated conversation which Danica felt is it just me having these kind of feelings and thoughts Mm. no Danica it's not and I don't want anyone to be thinking that that's the case that actually these are the real tensions um challenges uh wins uh beautifulness of the work and that there is a space that you can go where you can um learn more and feel part of a bigger conversation peter anything to add on that because you've done a lot of work behind the scenes on this website i mean i've done a lot of tinkering around but i suppose just to say that the content of the website although we've kind of been the steering group there's a lot of people who've contributed to that in like previous meetings that we've had and case studies and all of that kind of thing so it's an evolving uh project um and i suppose all all contributions are, are welcome um so i'd love to hear feedback on it as well from people so that's brilliant. And in the absence of the button that you need to press uh, that tells you where to send stuff or communicate with us, just in case that isn't working, you're very welcome to write to Lisa at lisacherry.co.uk and I will field anything that comes in and make sure that it uh, goes back into the collective group. Um, so that's www.breakingtheboundaries.co.uk. Um, And if you want to drop an email regarding anything or any additions you'd like to have, then please, uh, if the button doesn't work yet, lisa at lisacherry.co.uk would be fine. Any final comments, Danica, before we close this incredible, deep conversation, actually? Uh, no, I was just going to say, I'm kind of left feeling really hopeful and like I'm really pleased that people were interested in what we're talking about and had really thoughtful and engaging in questions about it because I suppose it just shows that there's a need for this and a need for this work. And I hope people kind of get involved and use the website and then we can have kind of wider and further conversations. It's been great. So thank you for sending that that tweet out, Lisa, for at the very beginning, we kind of started all, all of this off. Thank you, Danica. Peter? Um, well, yeah, thank you, Lisa and Danica, for, for helping create this space. Um, and for me, uh, uh, similar to Danica, um, whenever we kind of hold these spaces, I can really feel people's passion kind of going, yes, yes, I'm, you know, I'm in agreement. And, and this is something I think people believe, but maybe haven't had a collective space to kind of bring some of these things together. Um, so if we can help in any way to facilitate that, then um, I'll, I'll be very happy with that. Absolutely. That's brilliant. We're getting lots of comments coming up saying it's been brilliant. Um, the clapping hands emoji obviously was disabled. <laughs> Someone's had to write it. Um, we've got um, uh, brilliant work and, and thank you. So I think it's been really helpful for everybody. Someone else just, uh, this has been fab. Loved being around like-minded practitioners. So it's been great. Thank you so much. 
and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye.